This is MQ's Open Mind, the show where we look at the science behind mental health and its potential to transform lives. I'm Lucy Horton. When was the last time you heard someone say, I'm a little bit OCD, as they talk about liking things tidy? Public and media discussion on obsessive compulsive disorder, or OCD, has increased significantly over recent years. And often the classic media portrayals are associated with obsessive cleaning, liking to order things, or checking light switches. These are debilitating symptoms for people, but the truth is there are only two types of OCD. It can manifest in multiple different ways. The obsessions can range from worries about being a paedophile, causing harm to others, sinning, and some people experience intrusive graphic sexual images. And compulsions aren't necessarily a behaviour like handwashing. These can be mental acts or avoidance behaviours. And it's common. It's thought that around 1.2% of the population have OCD, but in reality it's probably much higher. Better understanding around OCD is clearly vitally needed, not just to show the full picture, but also to transform the way we support people. Today I am at Trinity College Dublin, where I'm joined by Rose Bretichet and Dr Claire Gillen. Rose has experienced OCD since she was a young teenager. The condition dominated much of her young adult life. And Claire is a neuroscientist who has investigated what's going on in the brain of people living with OCD. She's been developing a new theory for why people have compulsions that could change the way we treat it. I'm going to start the way I start all my podcasts, by asking you what the one question is you'd like answered about mental health. Claire, would you like to go first? I mean, there's lots of questions that I'd like to get answered, and we're working hard every day to answer many of them. What I'd like to understand is the individual a bit better, and to see if we can start to tailor our interventions more towards each person. That'd be amazing. And Rose? Um, yeah, I guess I'd, I'd second that. Being one such individual with a history of mental health problems, I'd, you know, I guess I'd, it's, it's essentially unanswerable, but why am I the way I am and why have I been through what I've been through? Yeah. Um, you know, I don't think there's, there is one answer to that, but some greater clarity would be nice. Mm. Um, you know, where OCD is concerned, uh, we really don't know. We're not sure um, why it happens. So, yeah, that's my one question. Yeah, what is your experience of OCD then? When did Um, your symptoms first arrive? My OCD started when I was uh, 15, Um, although I think looking back there had been sort of, there was a a long period of anxiety that led up to that, that it sort of like exploded when I was 15 um, as um, I started to have intrusive thoughts and fears that maybe I had the capacity to hurt a child, that I could abuse a child. Um, And rather than dismissing that as just a a bit of mental language, um, I engaged with it because it terrified me and I compulsively tried to get that thought out of my mind, reassure myself that that I would never do that, that I'd rather die than hurt a child. And the more I did that, um, the worse those doubts and fears became. Um, and that that was a period of like two years uh, from like 15 to 17 maybe maybe a bit longer um, and did you tell anyone about the thoughts no I mean like I, I I didn't know anything about OCD at the time um, and I certainly didn't know that it could manifest in that way so I essentially thought that uh, you know that I was the only person in the world that could ever have thought such heinous things and that if I told anyone I would go to prison and that I'd, you know, that I'd never see my family again. So yeah, no, I, I kept it a secret. Um, 
and as I grew older the the well I, I look at it I look back now and I can see what was happening was that it was my obsessive theme shifting but I obviously didn't know that at the time I thought it was genuine so I, I started to have more broader uh, intrusive sexual thoughts um, and started to have repetitive doubts about my sexuality you know if, so I had a boyfriend at the time you know maybe I didn't really want to be with him because I was having intrusive thoughts about women the more I tried to get them out of my mind the worse they became and I thought that their mere presence was evidence of the fact that I was keeping my true sexuality a secret um, and yeah so looking back I know it was OCD at the time I thought I was having a genuine sexual identity crisis and obviously I, I, I didn't have the knowledge to be able to link it to my earlier obsessions about um, you know worrying that um, I could abuse a kid like now I see that they were both obsessive themes mm-hmm. um, so that continued into my 20s um, and I still had no idea that it was OCD until I think I was about 22 um, and when I did find out that I had OCD, I started um, using that as compulsive reassurance. So every time I had an intrusive thought, I'd be like, it's fine, it's OCD. How did you actually, find out initially? Um, I think it was just... Googling. Gl- and Googling, yeah. Um, I'd been to the doctors um, with these symptoms like several times and had had various diagnoses, generalised anxiety disorder, depression. I was told that I was in the closet um, and yeah like I essentially went eventually went went to a doctor with a diagnosis and said I think this might be what I've got and then and then someone eventually was able to say yeah I think you've got OCD yeah and then what happened from that point um that was like the start I had I just had so many therapies that didn't work I got first I got sent for person-centered therapy whereby it was just essentially a, a, just a straight up talking therapy whereby you know you, you talk through what you've been through and um, then I went for psychodynamic therapy um, which again is um, sort of quite analytic and I was I was encouraged to look to my past look to like attachment issues like you know I was you know the Someone's giving like, even more weight to those thoughts. Exactly. And, so I was in therapy. I was basically encouraged to repeat the compulsive soul searching that I was doing twenty four hours a day anyway. Um, you know, trying to find out why I was having these thoughts, and basically, I think the concept was to kind of uproot something that was repressed so that I could let them go. Um, which again is just piling more and more weight onto something mm-hmm. which is uh, actually fairly irrelevant. Um, and uh, yeah, it was just it was it was a long it was a long process. It was eleven years from when I first started having symptoms to when I um, had therapy that really worked. I had exposure and response prevention therapy, but it but that but the driver th- throughout those years was was me researching and and not giving up. But yeah, because the, the help wasn't forthcoming. Yeah, yeah, and. Um what were some of the toughest times that you faced because of your OCD, do you think? Um, I think it was, the, the really punishing thing about OCD is that no matter um, how much knowledge you equip yourself with, it's never enough to stop those obsessions coming. So even when I was at the stage, you know, what well, I knew I had OCD, I was, I, I'd been through therapy, I'd had it confirmed by many doctors, like, and, 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 you know, rationally, I knew that 
um, you know, having an intrusive sexual thought about a woman, that doesn't mean anything. So why, but my brain was, I still felt this overwhelming compulsion to engage with it and to problem solve. Um, and it's just maddening. And, and you know, that that's happening, you know, in the, in the microsecond all the time, that cycle of obsession and compulsion which is exhausting in itself but then when you when this you sort of the the cycle gets bigger and you look at that over the space of like years and you're back where you started it's just like you you really feel like you can't get on with your life yeah until you until you get an answer to this question um yeah and actually the question is never going to be answered exactly exactly and the and you get you get better through in, in embracing the the doubt and resisting the urge to problem solve and and act out compulsions um but yeah if I'd have known that when I was 15 then I think things could have saved a lot of time yeah effort and pain yeah um and then you you've obviously got to a place where you feel very comfortable talking about it you're talking Mm -hmm. about it today you've written pieces for the guardian and vice and you've even written your own book about it Mm -hmm. um so what led you to get to that point of recovery uh, where you're able to feel um, comfortable talking about it? I think um, I... So by the, what, by the time I started writing about it, I was a lot better, and I think that's really key, because when you're in the grip of OCD, it just saps all your resources. So I couldn't have done that, like, you know, I, I couldn't have I, I couldn't have done the work, couldn't have sat down and do the work, mm. and done the work when I was that ill. So that was, getting better was the first step. Um, and then other things started to fall into place. I'd, I'd, I'd been writing for a long time, but I'd never had any piece published in, um, in any major publication. And I knew with, with OCD, and particularly with the type of OCD that I'd experienced, I knew that it was something that thousands of people were dealing with in secret, and that it was a story that had never been told. So there wasn't really any debate in my mind as soon as I had the idea to pitch it I just did so yeah so what would you define OCD as for me it's um it's a mental condition whereby someone experiences um intrusive thoughts doubts fears that might be mental images there might be bits of language there might be questions of identity um that just keep on firing and they're repetitive and they're repetitive and and the person feels a very powerful need to neutralize the anxiety associated with that event that that mental event mm-hmm. so you you have an obsession it makes you ex- extremely anxious and you act out a compulsion whether it's mental or whether it's physical to try and get rid of the anxiety and you get locked in a, an OC cycle like that. And Claire is there anything you'd add to that? Well I mean I think Rose is spot on in her definition and you know when we think about OCD, I think it's important to remember that it is essentially a diagnosis. That's what OCD is. It's not a biological reality. Can I can I just step in there? Yeah, just of course. Out, out of curiosity, when you say it's not a biological reality, yeah. can you say a little bit more about what you mean by that? Yeah, so we've been studying OCD for years and we've also been studying depression and anxiety and all of these other disorders. And what you know the data show overall when you look across all these different studies is that um, the kind of um, findings that you might have for OCD tend to be common to multiple disorders that don't have necessarily compulsive elements. Um, and similarly, when you look inside a category like OCD, when you have a group of people who all have the same diagnosis, 
you see this massive variability not only in their presentation but in the um, you know in uh, aspects of brain structure and function that we might think is important for OCD on average um, but none of these things hold true on the individual level so really and this kind of bears out in in comorbidity which is a, a word that we use to describe um having one or having more than one psychiatric diagnosis at the same time and as rose knows you know um when you have one diagnosis your chances of having uh two three or four other co comorbid diagnoses is substantially increased so this uh, really what we're seeing is this kind of blurring across all of these different diagnostic boundaries and we're seeing that when we look inside one everybody's really quite different Hmm. And it's like a spectrum where people fall on that. Yeah. So what have you found about OCD and what's happening in the brain when someone has a compulsion? Yeah, so this all started and we have come from a place of studying this category, this diagnostic category of OCD, and we were trying to understand um, the brain basis of it. Um, and one thing that I quickly became aware of when I started to meet patients who have OCD is that these guys know exactly what's going on. And that's what's really frustrating about OCD. Um, you know that there's no, you know, that flicking a light switch isn't going to stop a traffic accident from happening. But that compulsion, that urge to do that behavior can still cause you to not be able to leave the home for, you know, three hours trying to get out in the morning. Um, and, and that's a striking difference from how people have thought about OCD before, which is the idea that People are, you know, hyper afraid, right? And the behaviors or the compulsions that they perform are their way of handling these kind of strange beliefs that they have about the world. But, you know, the most frustrating thing about OCD is that you don't believe these things, you know, that they're the furthest things from what you believe. And it's this lack of control over behavior that um, and thoughts that really capture the OCD experience. Um, so with that kind of armed with those um, uh, conversations and insights, um, we started to try and look at... Um, what aspects of um, brain function could cause people to get stuck in repetitive patterns. And we started from a place of thinking about behavioral patterns, um, but we can talk about how that relates to thoughts in a moment. But for practical reasons, we can see behaviors, we can measure behaviors, that's where we started. Um, and so what we found in a series of studies that we did um, at the University of Cambridge was that people who have OCD are more likely to get stuck in habits. And habits are automatic behaviors that get installed when you repeat something over and over again. And what was interesting to us is that patients with OCD would get stuck in these habits, even though they had nothing to do with, let's say, the sexual obsessions that they had or the contamination obsessions that they'd had. It would be, to us, a brand new, the, the, what could be considered the birth of a compulsion, a brand new repetitive senseless behavior um, that they're more likely to feel the need or the urge to perform than someone who doesn't have a diagnosis of OCD. And we can trace that back to brain regions that control this very normal process, very adaptive process, which is habitizing stuff. If we don't habitize stuff, we'd spend all day tying our shoelaces in the morning. We need to do that. But the idea is that in OCD, people are more susceptible to getting stuck in these habits, to not being able to control these habits. Um, and, and that's one model that we have of, of what it is to be compulsive. What, um, what parts of the brain do you see habituation happening in? 
Yeah, so um, so the striatum, which is um, or, or the basal ganglia by kind of another name, um, is this um region of the brain that's like quite in the middle and um is older than other parts of the brain and is considered quite fundamental to how we learn behaviors and how we learn how we respond to stimuli in the environment, how we navigate the world. So any kind of organism needs this part of the brain to react to different things that are going on, and we think to to automate actions that should be automated. Um, now, as I said, though, we have done imaging studies with OCD. And while we see that the habits are related in a way that we'd expect to activity in these regions, it doesn't hold for every patient. Um, and that kind of, um, it doesn't hold for every patient. And what we've also shown recently is that it holds for patients who don't have OCD, who have different disorders that also have this feature of repetition. And we've looked at this in the disorders such as binge eating disorder and addiction. Um, and then more, re- and so those are, we, we've done studies with diagnosed patients with those um, disorders and we see the same kind of thing. And then more recently in, um, in uh, larger samples online, we've been kind of e- extending it um, more broadly to any kind of patterns of the, the feeling of the need to repeat an action over and over again that you, you don't want to repeat, essentially. And it, it features in, in uh, quite a few different disorders. Can you talk me through a study where you've seen that people with OCD seem to rely on habits more than people without OCD? Yeah, and the studies are very simple. Usually what we have is we have people come into a lab and um, we show them a stimulus and we have them perform a response every time they see that stimulus. And then we just, we love boring people to death, so we have them do it on over and over and over again, ad nauseum. And so one of the examples is we've done it um, where subjects are have to press a pedal, otherwise they'll get a little snap on their wrist, a little electrical snap on their wrist. And we have people doing this for a while, and people are very good at it, they don't like the snap, they'll press that pedal every time they see the red square. And the way that we look at, to see if a habit has been formed is after we train people for a long time, we then we remove the electrode from their wrist that was actually delivering this, the snap. And we see if we present them with that stimulus again, if there's likely to continue to press that pedal, mm. even though there's nothing to avoid anymore. And we find out that they are. And um, those, and we've done that a few different times with, you know, with earning points and earning money, um, and we see the same kind of results. But the advantage of doing that kind of semi-sadistic study with the electric shocks is that it allows us to try and understand how that relates to fear. We didn't do it, you know, for fun. It's because we can measure how people are sweating as they see the different stimuli, and we can um, also talk to them about um, their beliefs about how safe they are at different parts of the experiment and things like this. And the interesting thing that we found is we didn't find anything in terms of physiological fear. OCD patients, you take off the electrode, they could understand that they'd no longer be shocked, their their sweat responses went down. But the really interesting thing that we found in that study is that afterwards, when we point out that they kept responding, when we say, hey, why did you, you know, you didn't have to keep pressing that pedal, um, we found that some of the patients in the studies would start to kind of um, confabulate stories to explain the behavior that they had been performing. So they'd say stuff like, um, oh, well, I thought maybe I could be shocked to, you know, the other wrist that was, you know, that was still connected and that something else was associated with or, you know, um, start to come up with various explanations for why they had performed the behavior um, that was kind of contrary to the their understanding of the procedure that we'd taken before. And so the way we think about that is that you see yourself, you reflect on yourself performing an irrational behavior. And what we're always trying to do is explain the crazy stuff that we're doing, all of us, every day. 
Um, and so you tr your, your, your brain basically fills in the blanks and comes up with the explanation for that behavior that makes the most sense. And we think about that kind of most simply in the context of like contamination OCD, let's say. And you can see how getting into a cycle of, of repetitively hand washing, the explanation that goes with that, that we're all culturally prepared to come up with, is that you're afraid of, you know, germs or whatever the new um, hot button scared, you know, uh, thing that we're scared of in culture at a given moment is. Um, and that's something that we're, uh, we're following on now in studies. Um, but it's something that's been around since the 70s, and it's this kind of concept of cognitive dissonance. And when you do something that you know doesn't make sense, your brain kind of has to Wants react. to create a story. It's got to, it's got to reconcile it yeah. in some way. So this is one idea for how we think some of those thoughts in OCD come to, come to be. This disorder is not about faulty beliefs, you know? It's not about believing things that aren't real, that, you know, thinking that risks are a lot bigger than they actually are. It's about um, repetition. It's about an inability to control repetitive thought patterns of thought or repetitive behavioral sequences. Um, and the, you know, the reason that we came to this is you know, partly because of the findings that we've seen in those studies, but other findings like that the kind of thoughts that Rose has been describing are, are common. They're, they're you know, present in like 90% of the population. As I said earlier, the other 10 are probably lying about it. You know, and they're very common, particularly in adolescence. I myself have had the same kind of thoughts that Rose had. But they just met, you know, rather than engaging in compulsive behaviors, in my case, those thoughts, although disturbing, were able to just fl to float away. Mm -hmm. um, so the difference in OCD is that these thought patterns become really ingrained, really repetitive, really intrusive. But the kind of thoughts are not unusual at all. Uh, yeah, I was just thinking about what, what you were saying about beliefs. And it's that I think that insight is so important. Um, and it and I wish that was trickling down to like people that to service users because or even to the clinicians who are treating them because it's just not um you know i spent years having doctors tell me you know it's like if you you know if you're gay you know it's really okay and i would say to them i know i'd like i know it's totally fine like if like i would i would have given anything to just be gay over the of, uh, over what i was experiencing mm. like it's like if i'm gay then i'm gay like i don't care i just want an answer and I want these repetitive doubts to stop like I want it to fall on either black or white like I don't care which it is and and, and they kept on coming back to me and saying no but you've 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 got disordered beliefs about sexuality and I and I had to keep saying something but I, I don't think I do but when someone in a position of authority is telling you that over and over again mm. it really wounds your self-esteem because you think oh well what the, what's wrong with me like you know one of the therapies which you had exposure therapy can you talk me through what that looks like for you mm -hmm. so with OCD what so what a sufferer is usually trying to do is escape the anxiety that's associated with a thought for me my intrusive thoughts are always oh I'm I'm lying about being straight maybe um, the fact that I'm having intrusive thoughts about women means that I'm really gay and I really need to accept who I am and I'll never be happy with men so the compulsive element to that was that I would do, I, well, there were a broad range of compulsions, but an, one example would be I would might try and avoid any kind of uh, sexual imagery because I didn't want to be triggered, I didn't want the anxiety. Uh, but all, all those things, all they're doing is actually increasing the likelihood that those obsessions will return mm -hmm. and that you're going to become more confused. It's a vicious cycle. Um, so what exposure does 
is it you start off with very tame material so for me at the time my intrusive thoughts were um were sexual in nature as i said so you would start with very very light sexual imagery that your therapist would make you look at um and instead of doing what you had always habitually done i.e any of those things that i just mentioned avoidance or rationalizing um you would actually just accept whatever thoughts came into your mind and embrace the doubt that you don't know whatever you're feeling whatever thoughts are coming into your mind I don't know yeah maybe I am lying about who I am I'm not sure and you let your anxiety levels rise without without indulging in that massive massive urge you've got to to explain them away Um, and I believe that's called extinction um, where and 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 the idea is that the more you do that um, you you gradually habituate to the anxiety and the urge to act out the compulsions decreases. Exactly how we think about it, except that um, what we focus on is that what you're extinguishing is this cycle of of getting the thought and doing the action, and that's that stimulus response association, which is how we define a habit in the kind of basic neuroscience literature. So we think that what you're doing is you're breaking your habits. You're sitting there, you're not letting yourself perform the familiar sequence. Yeah. You're sitting there with your anxiety. You do it, it helps on multiple levels. You see that nothing bad does happen, for one, that helps. So you can think of it as like a thought experiment or a little behavioral experiment of your own. But I think most importantly, you're not completing this familiar stimulus response cycle. And then by breaking the habit over time, the thoughts themselves melt away. What, what are some of the things that trigger the onset of OCD? Do you think we know that yet? No, I don't think we do. I mean, so when we think about OCD is often thought about as having kind of early onset versus late onset OCD. Um, like anything, like any mental health condition, if you have a major life stressor, that puts you at risk. It puts you at risk for lots of, of regular non-psychiatric um, medical problems as well as um, you know, reducing your res- resilience to maybe a latent susceptibility to you know, issues with mental health. Mm-hmm. So whereas you know, these things increase your odds of so maybe you're someone who'd be happily you know a little bit compulsive but never kind of cross that threshold and never have it interfere with their lives you have a major stressful life event you could get knocked into that kind of cycle there's some evidence to suggest that's the case but for a lot of people they don't have any you know early adversity they don't have any triggering event um so yeah it's it i I wouldn't put my finger on there being anything concrete Mm mm-hmm um, I just wanted to ask about what you said about that some people uh, display compulsive symptoms, but they're not necessarily, they don't necessarily have a diagnosis of OCD. And that plays into something that I've been thinking about for a while, in that people in the OCD community get very upset about this phrase, a little bit OCD. I, I'm not actually that bothered by it um, for, for a couple of reasons, because I think that m- m- the people that use it aren't doing it maliciously like at all like at all they just they just don't really know um therefore i think the anger is 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 not really justified but also because is it not true that uh, obsessive compulsive symptoms do in fact exist on the spectrum and that you kind of can actually be a little bit ocd i think that's absolutely true but i think there's a the reason that and the reason that it's it's also a pet peeve of mine sometimes when people say that they're a little bit ocd is because they um, there, there's a critical distinction in that 
usually what they're talking about is people who who like to have things clean Mm -hmm. or people who like to have things orderly um and the real thing that you got to know about ocd is that people they don't like it you know it's the feeling of being forced to do something of of having this thing controlled your control your life and there's this like old school phrase called ego dystonic which is what characterizes ocd and it's not stuff that you like doing so when people say they're little ocd because they like the house clean it's very different from being trapped and feeling that you need to clean when it's the last thing that you want to do or the last thing that you like to do. Um, but if you're using it in the in the right way, um, then I have to contradict myself and say that, yeah, everyone's a little bit OCD. We think it exists on a spectrum. Um, but the key thing is you have to not like it for it to be OCD. Otherwise, it's just, you know, your, your personality, what you like doing. So what do you think we are yet to find out about OCD and what would you like your research to kind of bring into the field well what we're we're really focused on right now is translating these basic neuroscience basic psychology insights into clinical deliverables into stuff that can be translated from what we're doing here to you know your 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 first meeting with a gp ideally but otherwise with a psychiatrist later on um so to do that again what we're trying to focus on is the individual and trying to get away from studying these disorder classes because we know that they don't relate to specific brain circuits we know that every patient with the diagnosis is different i mean a good example is um schizophrenia where you can have the same diagnosis and none of the same symptoms as your partner who also has a diagnosis right um, and this is just one of the kind of um, quirks and flaws in the system that we're using for making these diagnoses so we'd like to kind of get beyond that and try and understand what seem to be traits that cut through multiple disorders and that are um, evident in all of us to different degrees in the population, understand how those work, translate that into therapies. And then, you know, the, the critical thing is, um, you know, you can ha- be really high in a trait like compulsiveness and it cannot be interfering with your life. There are cases where that happens. Um, but having the for people who are experiencing distress, for people who it is interfering with their lives, having these treatment options available um, and, and knowing how best to treat. Yeah, you earlier you were saying that it's difficult to kind of see where the emergence of OCD comes from, but do you think there's anything in this research about habit formation that could enable us to see who might be at most at risk so we can sort of find people earlier on? So when they're in early adolescence and they don't have to go like Rose 10, 12 years without any. Yeah, so absolutely. And this is something that we're trying to do, um, you know, new projects that we're trying to get up and running. So rather than predicting treatment response, we're interested in getting bigger, even larger samples and getting people who are well and seeing if we can predict who will who will not feel well after a while. The reason I say we don't know anything right now is because the studies that have been done are, are just too small. The studies in the area of, of habits and predictive, you know, who's going to get sick in the future haven't been done. It's very hard to do these studies because, you, you know, we talk about maybe one to three percent of the population meeting diagnostic criteria for OCD. So you need a hell of a lot of people in order to have enough that are going to transition so you can actually meaningfully you know, pick the signal from the noise. So, but we're trying to get at this question. And I think that might be really key because just preventing people from starting off down this path, we, we, rather than getting stuck in this kind of chronic relapsing maintenance phase, there's a potential, at least there's optimism, that if you got in early enough, you could prevent people from ever maybe crossing a threshold 
um, into you know a life with this kind of um, remitting relapsing course but we don't know that's just a that's another piece of optimism that we have that maybe that will be a better strategy that you know prevention rather than treatment so I guess my final question for both of you is what do you hope for the future of mental health I I would like us all to get a little bit better at talking about it I think I think that would be a big help um, and for the conversation to stay open-minded and exploratory um, I think it's natural for us all to grasp at um, defined categories and diagnoses and, and fixed simple answers to things but actually mental health is a very very complex problem um, and there's there's near infinite variables when we're talking about it and I just think always keep that front of mind and that we're all, we're all complex human beings and whether or not we've got a diagnosis um, you know we all we all deserve to be listened to yeah absolutely Claire yeah I mean I think Rose is right you know what's what's really important is not keeping these things in in a box inside our own heads that's how these things um, how the pressure builds and causes a lot of unnecessary um, distress uh, I'm a I'm a, a scientist and an optimist in this area so fundamentally what I hope we can do is understand you know what pre predisposes people to um, to to having you know a, a risk for developing one of these disorders that really intrudes with their lives and, and again getting to that idea that we can intervene a bit earlier but I hope that we can start to understand um, that we are all a little bit you know OCD we are all a little bit anxious these things are human traits that have been preserved by evolution they're there for something we should try and talk about them understand them um, and not not give them to ourselves. What would you say to someone who might be worrying about the fact that they could have OCD? Um, uh, I would say uh, educate yourself. Um, it, so it sounds flippant, but but don't worry. Don't worry that you're that you're marked out for life because these these things are manageable and there is help out there. Um, and it's getting better all the time, so keep at it. Thank you both so much for joining me today, Rose, for telling your story about OCD, Claire, for talking so eloquently about your research. Um, it sounds like it's got a lot of potential. If you have been listening to this podcast and feel affected by anything in it, you can call the Samaritans on 116 123. And if you would like to find more help and support for issues related to OCD, you can search for OCD Action. Thank you for listening. <laughs>